Hello and welcome to the Cicada Lounge podcast. My name is Jordan Foster as always and today we're talking with Coyote Peterson. Now Coyote is a wildlife explorer. He is a YouTube personality that's amassed over 17 million subscribers on YouTube. What Coyote's been doing over these last few years is essentially engaging the audience around wildlife conservation and getting directly involved and getting in the mud and in the thick of it pretty much about showing these animals to you up close. We did talk about uh, people that um, inspired him, people like Steven Spielberg and Bear Grylls and Steve Irwin, all of these people had big influences on Cody Peterson and what he's been doing. He's really famous for um, animals stinging and biting him, but in this chat we go into a bit of a bit more of the nuances that make up what Cody does and the channel that he hosts, which is the Brave Wilderness channel. Uh, Cody also has a wildlife show called Brave the Wild on the animal planet as well. Uh, which we again we talk about but yeah we talk about obviously the bites and the stings and things like that but he does so much work for for conservation he does so much work for engaging uh, the youth around the world and getting them interested in wildlife conservation you know protecting ecosystems and protecting these amazing life forms that we've got around the world especially in the americas but yeah don't want to go on too much we'll jump right into it yeah, no, I love these. I, I love podcasts. Honestly, I'm trying to do more podcasts because I feel like the free-flowing conversation allows you to dive deeper into topics versus, you know, a lot of, of interviews the last five to 10 minutes where they want to know how that was this thing of this, how that was this thing of that. Okay, cool. Sounded painful. Moving on. You know, there's no like details to like, why do some of these things happen? What sort of research do you do? What you know, what's going through your head before you go through these experiments and whether it's sting stuff or people want to talk about the stuff that has nothing to do with the stings, which is really only about 2% of the content on our channel. So yeah, podcast setting is definitely the, the spot for a good conversation. Good, good. Yeah. There's, I've heard so many people uh, when you've done podcast episodes before where they've just focused on the stings. Mm-hmm. And like you've said, it's such a small part of what Brave Wilderness, the whole channel really is. Right. Some of my favorites are when you've been interacting with wild animals, like the famous ocelot uh, encounter that you had. Wild ocelot comes, just wants to have a bit of a play. That's insane. Those kinds of things are what really, I don't know. It seems to me in the last, since I was in school, um, there's been a real lack of presenters getting in and amongst the animals. And there's been a lot of focus, which I really like, of... Mm -hmm people um, just observing the behavior with no human interaction whatsoever but I think having that human element which you provide big time um, really just gets you involved and you feel the energy that and you're so excited Um, and I know that you've got loads of comparisons with Steve Irwin um, but it's it really is that um, that fluidity and the flow and you just got really passionate about the animals and there's a wolverine right there in your face and you can't help but like feel the the energy coming off you and i think that really excites people so so yeah it's i consider you an educator really mate oh thank you i appreciate that yeah you know it's it's always quite the honor to ever be put in the same sentence with somebody like steve Irwin. obviously he's a huge inspiration for me um i've watched pretty much every hour of 
animal-based edutainment that's been produced from the days of uh, Marlon Perkins and Jim Fowler doing Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom right through, you know, the new Planet Earth and, and Blue Planet and Our Planet specials. I can't even keep them all straight these days how many different ones there are, but I'll just classify those as the David Attenborough realm versus the Steve Irwin versus the old school type stuff. And, you know, we really try to put ourselves somewhere right in the middle, I think. Um, you know, what Steve was so good at was really getting you as a viewer to feel engaged with what it was you were learning. I mean, the key word is learning. So I'm, I'm glad you used the word educator because that's what I consider myself first and foremost. I mean, yeah, I could just go out and shoot beautiful cinematography of animals and write you a script, but they're doing such a good job of that with planet earth. I would just be like, you know, the poor man's version trying to come up on the heels of that. Whereas, you know, Bear Grylls did a phenomenal job with what he accomplished with man versus wild. We saw that and we said, this is perfect. The fast paced camera and editing style, the, you know, engrossing music, but bears killing and eating the animals. So how do we take the Steve Irwin element and work that into the same form of Man vs. Wild and create the new version of what Steve Irwin's show might have been had it been produced in you know the late 2000s. So that's essentially uh, how we came up with the formula. That's brilliant. That's really cool. Another, um, when you compare, well, people that are fans of yours obviously probably have heard of Steve Irwin too. Mm -hmm. But early 2000s, um, Steve Irwin and your production value, there's such a juxtaposition between how far ahead the technology's come, really. And that's yeah. actually another thing I wanted to chat to you about, because everyone, everyone knows the guy that gets um, stung by uh, like killer hornets and things like that. But it's the people behind the camera that I'm very impressed with because they've got to keep up with you <laughs> and you're yeah, a lightning that's, bolt. <laughs> that's, that's a huge part of it. My team is incredibly versatile. And I mean, we, you know, we we're a very small team and, and the way mm. that we accomplish these episodes is a, a really, a, it's a true creative process. We approach every episode just like it's a, an independent film and we have, story structure, forethought. I mean, these things don't just randomly happen. Um, I mean, encounters with animals randomly happen, but you have to be prepared for those moments to happen so that everybody's firing on all 12 cylinders when um, that moment occurs naturally in the wild. Right, I see, yeah. Because um, you, like myself, have got a bit of a background in media production, film production and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing you pretty much yeah. just went from oh i've got all of this knowledge in my head and um i've i imagine you bumped into a few like-minded people you started experimenting with you being in front of the camera and because there's so much different there's so much different in like in, interesting wildlife species in the south americas and the north americas as well right. and why not i don't i don't i don't i, I don't see enough um documentary style filmmaking on North American animals, really. There's so many different, um, so many different ecosystems that you can explore. I mean, I, I rewatched the one where you, uh, um, you were exploring at night and you bumped into, uh, I think it was a gar, like an, it was a, not an alligator gar, but it was, uh, that's it. Yeah, the spotted gar, yeah. And it seems like they're everywhere. And then that led me down a rabbit hole. And then I found out about the 
huge alligator gar, which was then persecuted um, in the, I think it was the 1800s, early 1900s for killing children. Even though alligator gars can only really, they only really go after prey items, they know they can swallow whole. It's, it's, it's that kind of enthusiasm, I think, that you're, the, that you're really good at invigorating in people, especially the younger generations. Wait just a couple of weeks till you see our two-part alligator gar episode that launches the beginning of October. Mm. It's called Gar Wars. So we thematically <laughs> built the whole thing off of, you know, Star Wars. <laughs> and there's a huge battle going on right now between conservationists for these fish and people that are, are bow hunting, essentially shooting these fish with bows and arrows with no limits placed around them. Because right now, alligator gar are not listed as a game fish species. Wow. which most fish are game fish. They're considered trash fish, which means you can pretty much go out into the environment and kill as many of them as you want at any time of the year. So it's a big conservation piece for us. It's definitely going to ruffle some feathers in like the bow fishing industry. But these things are ancient. They're living dinosaurs and mm. they're upright. And if we don't have protections on animals like these, they're going to get eradicated off the face of the planet for no reason. There are, are no reports of alligator gar ever truly biting a human. And we show you how docile these fish truly are. So anybody that thinks, oh, I was bitten by an alligator garb, you know, Jeremy Wade did episodes on it for River Monsters. It ended up being alligators, true American alligators that were the run-ins people had with these fish. The only time where a bite has ever happened is fishermen trying to remove hooks mm. from their mouths in the process of catching them. So you know, one of these vilified species that just needs to be put in the right light, basically. Yeah, I totally understand. And also, that's another good, good thing about what you do and, and your channel is removing all of these crazy myths surrounding certain animals and bringing them into a new light. And I mean, to say that the alligator gar was persecuted is, a, is an understatement, really. Yeah, they really. took, they electrocuted entire river systems, didn't they? And yeah. like absolutely decimated local fish populations just to find an alligator gar and the alligator gar has never like you said ever killed anyone let alone hurt anyone it's so it's people not understanding or doing enough research people choose to destroy things before they choose to learn and understand about them and we feel that's such a big part of the brave wilderness channel and whether it's something like um alligator gar or even you know some of our more popular content with things that i'm bitten and stung by to show people how difficult it is, first of all, to have an interaction with one of these animals. I have to physically go searching sometimes for days, if not weeks, to come across a species, let alone be able to catch it and then physically put it in a situation where it wants to sting or bite me. So, you know, a big, a big part of it is to show people that these things are way more afraid of us than we should ever be of them. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. How would you go about catching an alligator gar? Because I mean, like, their oh. scales... <laughs> just grabbing one the wrong way a research group at texas a&m university in texas um, the location's top secret where they're doing their research uh, but we use something called gill nets which are these huge nets that we stretch across the length of a river system and eventually a fish swims into it and then it's game on and without necessarily giving anything away we caught and recorded and filmed the largest alligator gar to ever be featured in anything. River monsters, we, we tripled the size of the alligator gar that Jeremy Wade caught, if that what gives the you some context. Oh, that's insane. 
It's huge. And that was a it's beast the, it's that he the biggest, Yeah. Well, we tripled it. So, you know, I, I love Jeremy <laughs> Wade. He's one of my idols. And we, uh, we give a couple of shout outs to Jeremy at different points throughout the GAR episodes that we did. I think if he sees this episode, he would truly be proud of, of what this fish is that we landed. Wow, that's insane. Because I mean, like on what an alligator gar can reach, what, like, what, 12 foot, something like that? How many, how, uh, there's rumors of them being that big. The world record caught on rod and reel, I think, was about 375 pounds. It was like 10 feet in length. Wow. So ours fell short of the world record, but not by much when it came to the record in Texas, believe it or not. So um, it's a big fish. When you see it, it's like we caught a dinosaur. It, the, the genuine excitement that comes out in the moment of us actually landing this fish and then me getting to be with it in the water. Um, I mean, it's, it's head is two and a half feet in length alone. So it's, it's a big animal. That's insane. Yeah. That is insane. Wow. That's crazy. I'm, I'll look at subscribe, like, and subscribe. Okay. Anyone who's listening right now, I'm, yeah. I can't wait to see that episode. Click yeah, the bell. <laughs> Oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, I knew it's, it's shows like River Monsters as well is also, I know that it has monsters in the title, but Jeremy Wade, like yourself, has, uh, does a really good job at dispelling these kind of myths about certain, certain freshwater fish and saltwater fish. Like you've got, uh, what is it, bull sharks that manage to make their way um, up freshwater river systems and things like that. And, you know, bull sharks are, are arguably very dangerous. When it comes to the shark world, I would say a bull shark is much more dangerous than a great white shark. You're yeah. more likely to be bitten by a bull shark because of the water systems they'll get into mm. and because of their exploratory nature, right? A shark bites something to test it. But we as humans are basically made like a stick of butter. We're like the weakest animal on the planet when it comes to a shark biting you. It's like game over. If a bull yeah. shark decides to taste your leg oh, you're in some serious trouble. But, um, you know, there are also a lot of times in very murky waters. So the shark can't necessarily see what it is that it's going after. The same way that surfers end up getting tagged by great white sharks from underneath, a surfboard with human limbs off the side of it looks a lot like a sea lion. Seal, yeah. That's what great white sharks are feasting on. If it's a tiger shark, they feast on sea turtles primarily. So from the underside, it looks like a sea turtle. And it's that initial catastrophic bite that can be so detrimental to a human that that's what makes us afraid. And it's not, you know, really taking the time to understand that like, look, I'm not saying anything against people that go surfing. It's a wonderful sport, but these people that surf are taking a risk. They know the risk that they're taking. You enter into that animal's world and you put yourself in the position of prey let alone make yourself look like prey. I mean, you're only upping your chances to be bitten by something. So, um, you know, with risk comes reward or comes the end, I guess. It's, it's, <laughs> if, you, if you love surfing, you're, you're taking those risks. That's it. Just make sure you've got a camera on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's um, these kind of dangerous or supposedly dangerous animals like i i've only just been made aware of this apparently this was a phenomena in america but there was this whole killer hornet um 
craze that was going around that was really heavily perpetuated by the media. And I found, again, one of your videos to help dispel the whole thing. So what species is it? Is it a giant Japanese hornet or is it a Eurasian hornet? The Asian giant hornet breaks down into a couple of different species, basically. Um, The largest one is the Japanese giant hornet. There's also one in China and one in Japan, and they're, you know, the science aspects of how they differentiate is, you know, potato, potato at the end of the day. Yeah. The one that I was stung by is technically considered the second largest, though. The one in China is a little bit bigger, but again, I mean, you're, you're splitting millimeters at the end of the day when you're comparing the two. Hmm. Um, and it is an incredibly painful sting. It is a very dangerous insect. Uh, they estimate somewhere between 30 and 40 people die yearly from the stings of this insect. Uh, As far as it breaks down with the nickname murder hornet and them invading the United States, it is so incredibly unlikely that a population or populations, I should say, would create a stronghold that it's all hype, but I guess it sells, you know, ad space and, and, you know, blog titles and stuff like that. And certainly from our perspective, we were able to utilize putting out some additional content surrounding the murder hornet. And even went as far as to film an episode that released recently on something called the cicada killer, which is a large sand wasp species in the United States that people are misidentifying as being an invasive giant hornet. So I came out of sting retirement to be stunned by that, mostly to show people that it's not a giant hornet, but also because I'd never been stung by it. And we wanted to show people that the sting really isn't that bad. Nowhere close to that of the giant hornet. Right. Okay. Good. Well, well, that's a relief sort of, (laughs) but um, yeah, this whole uh, coming out of retirement thing, do you think that's going to be permanent or is it just for the cicada killer? Um, Well, as far as the stings go, yes, I'm not going to be stung by other stuff. You know, we've kicked around the concept of getting stung by things that are not painful. You know, your backyard insects, like a common hornet or a normal paper wasp, uh, a bumblebee, just to like show kids, look, if you are stung, it's really not that bad. But I'm not sure we're ever gonna necessarily go in that direction just for the sake of people being like, oh, you're doing it for views. I mean, we're really not doing it for views. We, we did a lot of the sting episodes to show people these insects, to bring them into the spotlight and really take them out of a negative stance that a lot of people had. When it comes to the bites, we definitely have some more bites that are coming. We're actually experimenting with a series we're developing called Eaten Alive. Um, We filmed two episodes in the Eaten Alive series thus far, Piranhas and Sea Lamprey. So both of those are coming out in November and December and oh buddy, are they entertaining. It's probably some of the best stuff we've done yet. So um, bites, are more of an experiment where it's like, well, I'm never gonna be bitten intentionally by a shark or a lion or a bear or some of the things that people suggest, but we really hone in on some of those creepy crawly things where it's like, well, what happens if you put your hands into a tank full of piranha? Are they going to eat you or are they not? So let's just say most of these episodes are guaranteed to have a little bit of blood, so. Oh, magical way of putting it. I mean, it. I suppose it depends on on the piranha species. From what we've seen, especially on if you if you're a fan of river monsters and things like that, they tend to be pretty docile and over over only really go after prey items that seem to be struggling or in some kind of distress or had been injured before. Not to burst the bubble. <laughs> 
great thing with the Eaten Alive series, again, is to find out, are these animals really aggressive toward humans? Do mm. they have a taste for flesh and blood? Or are a lot of these instances where a bite happens or something else happens, is it mistaken identity? Is it a rumor? Is it a misnomer? Like, again, like Jeremy Wade, it's dispelling a lot of these myths while also giving you a really up close, cool look at these creatures and a solid action-packed education, possibly a conservation message or possibly a message of what people are doing to control certain species. The sea lamprey is a great example. And actually that's the script I'm in the process of writing right now. We filmed right. the episode last week. Um, there are major invasive species in the Great Lakes here in the United States and they've decimated uh, the fishery industry. Um, so again, it's how are teams controlling the populations of lamprey and are they something that we as humans need to be afraid of when we go swimming in the Great Lakes? Wow. Wow. Fair enough. I mean, lamprey are pretty common around the British Isles mm -hmm. and well, there's, there's not a lot much going for the British Isles in terms of deadly deadliness. Uh, if you've been to Great Britain, you'll probably know that the only native venomous, um, like snake species is the is the adder which is mm -hmm. viperus berus um there's not a lot of yeah killy killiness around i mean we get the odd great white sharks and people are scared um a little bit scared um about the uh basking shark just because they're huge just because they're big pretty much and you see them all the time. I live on the south coast. I live next to a city called Brighton. And you get basking sharks moving and finding um, plankton shoals and things like that. And other um, small invertebrates to eat up and down the south coast. But aside from uh, dangerous animals, Great Britain and quite a few of the different European countries doesn't really have that much going for it. Right. I wonder what makes it. I wonder why America and South America? Because I mean, even, even North America has got like diamondback rattlesnakes and things like that, which can really mess you up pretty quick. Um, I wonder what it is about the Americas that just holds all of these really fiercely competitive animals and ecosystems that develop all these crazy. You know, the thing that I always liken it to, and I'm literally writing this into the script about the sea lamprey right now, is it's Hollywood. Yeah. People films people want to be afraid of things it's almost like we do this to ourselves and i think people are more afraid of the things that are bizarre or alien looking than they are the things that are a clear picture i mean you can go back to 1975 when steven spielberg and universal released jaws i mean people were afraid of sharks before jaws but man people were really afraid of sharks yeah they were and when you look at something like the sea lamprey Here's a creature that looks like an alien. It's got a mouth with 150 needle sharp teeth and then a tongue that's like a razor sharp cheese grater. And their story is that they suction onto fish, drill a hole in them, and then suck out their blood and bodily fluids. I mean, dude, that's a Hollywood horror film right there. <laughs> so then imagine me putting my hands into an aquarium with a hundred of them and then inducing a suction. And we did suctions on my wrist, my stomach, and my neck. And oh man, this episode is going to make people's skin crawl. And it is not comfortable to have these things suction onto you, twist their heads, and start to go to work. But the real experiment is, do they want to eat human blood or are they only interested in fish blood? So that's what this episode will ultimately test out. And like I said, 
there will be blood you <laughs> are alive when these things begin to eat you. That's for sure. So it's pretty horrific in its own right. I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, not if you're like hemophobic, maybe don't tune yeah. into that. Yeah. Seeing as they literally drain your blood dry, but uh, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's not every day that we know that an episode is going to do fantastic, but with the sea lamprey one, yeah, this, this one's going to be a screamer. That's for sure. I can't wait. Is this one going to be one of your longer ones, like the, uh, like the Wolverine episode? Yeah, the, the sea lampreys actually breaks down. It's going to be a two-part episode. So something oh, we've yeah. been experimenting yeah. with on the channel has been releasing an episode earlier in the week and then the second part of it on a Saturday. And what's cool about that is that then we can combine those episodes together so they make one part and we release then a third time down the road. It's kind of a re-release and sometimes the audience gets a little bit, ah, I've seen this before. But every time you release a, an episode, you're drawing a new audience to the channel. So we love the ability to reconnect episodes that are broken down into two parts strategically. Um, it kind of makes for that, I don't know, as for the, the filmmaker side of me, loves experimenting with like the the original and the sequel and like how you can follow things up. So it's more of a filmmaking tactic that we experiment with than like trying to like milk the audience for something. Yeah. 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 And this also seems like it's heading in a direction where there's going to be endless new content possibilities, which is fish fish. Yeah. I think um, was not a criticism. It was slightly lacking on the channel, but now I think that you guys are delving more into it. It's just because like filming fish is, it's a new environment. There's loads of other technical um, problems that you've got to overcome. It's normal. But I think that now that you're going into like lampreys and different fish species and piranhas and things like that, there's a whole new world, literally a whole new world opens up for um, like you um, diving and you being bitten by things. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Strategically did that to give a little space between river monsters and its final season doing its run. And, you know, what Jeremy's doing with his career. Um, I mean, you know, he set the bar with what river monsters was in the television space, but truth be told, there's, there's no fish content that's getting massive views on the internet anywhere. You know, I mean, mm. Jeremy's not going out being like, all right, I'm going to make river monsters now for the internet. And we're not trying to recreate river monsters by any means whatsoever. We're looking to team up with the right conservation groups, dispel some of those similar myths that Jeremy touched on, but also really give you a, a deeper dive look into the life cycle of these fish and the conservation work that's needed to keep these species here. I, I would say my biggest gripe that I ever had with river monsters was you just never saw enough of the fish. Mm. You know, it's like you saw the fish at the very end for two minutes and then it was let go. You didn't get enough of that fish's life history and the importance of the conservation um, that I think we're going to really try to focus in on. So yeah, fish are going to start making a, uh, a stronger appearance on the Brave Wilderness channel. We have several episodes already outlined for next year that we plan on trying to produce surrounding fish. So it'll be cool. Cool. No, I can't wait for that. No, I, actually, I totally agree with you with that gripe. You didn't see enough of the fish at the, at the end products. Like a good example of what you see it all the time in the ad, on the advertising is the, um, the Goliath tiger fish. And it is a ferocious looking um, fish, really is. Uh, but you only really saw it for, what, a few minutes? And then it ended up being carved up by the villagers anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, no. <laughs> Bit, bit of sweet ending, wasn't it? 
Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine in, in post-production when they got that episode back into post. Yeah. And, you know, they're looking at it like, oh, my gosh. Like, we spent all this time to catch this fish. And I, I can only imagine the situation Jeremy and the crew are in where it's like, dude, you're with a bunch of local villagers. And what do you do? I'm going to take your fish. Yeah. Or you're not leaving here with this footage. I mean, you know, we've been in some rather hostile situations our, our, ourselves where it's like, oh, man, are we going to get our gear confiscated? Like, really? in that moment so they were probably like uh well i guess the thing that we have to do is give up the fish and i'm, I'm sure the team was you know running like crazy in post-production be like all right we got to put the right spin on this because we don't ever show an animal getting injured or killed or something like that but we got to put the episode out so i imagine that must have been pretty tough for them yeah i bet you mentioned that you um that you nearly had your stuff con- confiscated have you had ever had any run-ins with like country officials and things like that Oh, I got I got held up at gunpoint and led down to the side of a river filled with crocodiles at gunpoint in Costa Rica. And I've never been more afraid in my life. I, I honestly thought I was going to be shot and thrown in the river and eat my crocodiles, me and my crew. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, has happened. this is actually before the uh, before the Brave Wilderness channel was a YouTube channel and we were developing the series. It was the first time I traveled internationally to film anything, and I was in Costa Rica. And long story short, there were some miscommunications that happened between the producers I was working with and the police officers that were watching our production vehicles. And we ended up getting taken hostage by a militia group. And um, they thought that we were poaching um, a farmer's cattle, which we're trying to explain that that's not what was happening. And then to prove that we were not killing cattle, myself and one of my producers was led down to a river with automatic weapons in the dark, a river filled with crocodiles, and walked up and down the river to prove that we had not been poaching cattle. I thought for sure we were getting shot and thrown in that river. Yeah, wow. it was terrifying. Yeah, no, what a terrifying sounds like an understatement. Jeez, yeah. No one can <laughs> say you're not dedicated, Coyote. When you have people pointing automatic weapons or holding like my one crew member had a, a, a nine millimeter held to the side of his head to force over like giving up like the camera gear. Like they wanted to look at the footage that we had because they thought, oh yeah, you guys are filming yourselves killing this guy's cattle. I mean, dude, it was, it was a crazy situation. I mean, I've, like I said, I've, I've never been more afraid for my life than I was in that moment. And I was like, oh my gosh, now I want a job traveling internationally as an animal adventure host. Is this a good <laughs> idea? So yeah, it was pretty extreme. Yeah, no, that's crazy. All right, any of those crew members filming that episode with you now? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, three, three of the guys that were on a part of that trip are still with my full-time team today. Yeah. Oh, hats off to them. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Well, I'm glad nothing happens. That that would yeah, that would have been disastrous. But uh, yeah, thank you. for us is that we had permission to be where we were, and we were in fact filming B-roll of the crocodiles on the river. So yeah. when it checked out that we were not the people that had been poaching cattle, it was okay, cool. But we were told, and when I say militia group, they call themselves the environmental police. Dude, it was it was four dudes in black outfits with automatic weapons in a black SUV. I mean, no official badges, no nothing. And it was just like, all right, we're going to get robbed for something here. We don't know what they're going to take. Hopefully it's not our lives. They ended up taking pretty much like the equivalent of like $150 American cash. 
And that was it. They didn't take our cameras. They didn't take anything. They were pretty much like, get out of here. If we ever see you again, it's going to be trouble. So wow. crazy, right? Have you ever been back to Costa Rica? Yes, many <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't film in that spot anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I learned my lesson. <laughs> I'll say, yeah. It's a, it reminds me of this, uh, this little story that David Attenborough told where he was in some far-flung heart of darkness around the world. And he was mm-hmm. stood in the middle of a trail. I think it might have been New Guinea, actually. It rings a bell. But he, it was black and white film, I think. And then you see these hundreds of tribesmen charge down the hill with shields, spears, brandishing, with war cries, charging at David Attenborough. The shot of him stood there. And then he started walking uh, steadily towards them the last couple of feet as they ran towards him. And he stuck out his hand and went, how do you do? In very British fashion and shook yeah. their hands and... <laughs> And that was it. The friendship was made. All it took was that man's balls of steel and <laughs> the production crew and David didn't die. And that's, that's, it. that's sometimes what it takes. You know, after our experience in Costa Rica, we are very, very careful with how we plan trips in the connections that we make on the ground in countries before we actually get there to figure out where it is that we're going to film. I mean, a lot of stuff on YouTube that people do, I feel is very fly by the seat of your pants where like people might not get the right permits. And, you know, I'm talking about people that might do skateboarding videos or prank videos and and stuff like that. But we cross every T and dot every I we get permits to interact with the animals that we film. We have professionals that we work with on the ground. I mean, we go to the umpteenth degree with precautions to make sure that our crews are safe when we're filming our content. I believe it. I totally believe it. I mean, if looking at your content from its aesthetic, um, like aesthetics, pretty much, mm-hmm. you would assume that all of the right precautions have been made in like post-production, production, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, totally believe that. And obviously you've got connections to the Discovery Planet and, and things like that. So you're very, not very TV, but you, right. you do things by the book, which, yeah. is, which is really, really good. Well, when we produced, you know, we produced the series Brave the Wild for Animal Planet. And when you're producing for television, even versus Animal Planet, sorry, it's an entirely different world of um, legalities that you have to cover. I mean, remember, you know, Animal Planet's owned by Discovery Communications. It's one of the many brands underneath their their banner. So, you know, they're a, a massive, a massive company. So they have to do everything by the book. They can't risk, you know, having one of their uh, production teams or show hosts running around out there in the wild doing crazy stuff without permits because that's going to blow back on them if they find themselves in any sort of legal heat. So yeah, we're very careful, not only for YouTube, but when we produce the TV series to make sure we did everything by the book. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Uh, I said discovery, I meant animal. Uh, <laughs> I knew the, yeah, no, good, good. As long as someone did, but um, yeah, I mean this this whole bringing the, the production value of TV to YouTube is something that I haven't seen really before, aside from one or two anomalies that have happened on YouTube. They've got nothing to do with animal conservation or animal awareness of any kind. What do you think is the, um, is the future for showing and educating the public about animals and biodiversity, aside from your own channel, that is? Do you think that there's a future or do you think you're sort of an anomaly in your own right. 
Well, there's, there's definitely a future when it comes to where is this content going to be distributed? I mean, I am, I'm front and center to always say it's, it's the digital space. I mean, I can tell you very openly that, you know, we're not in contract with Animal Planet anymore at this point. We had a phenomenal experience getting to produce Brave the Wild. But, you know, my biggest gripe about the release of that show was the lack of audience that it was reaching. I mean, yeah. half of my audience on YouTube doesn't even know that we had a TV show. I still have people being like, Coyote, you need a TV show. I'm like, dude, I produced 18 of the best hours of animal adventure content that's been produced of all time, you know, production quality and, and the stories and whatnot. You know I mean? We really took it to a next level as compared to what we did on, on the YouTube channel. But the problem is there's not enough people watching cable television these days for that to have a viable future. People are watching in the digital space and the attention span that we all have, which is continuing to be limited, I mean, mm. myself included. If I start watching a series and I get bored 20 minutes in, I'm like, I'm going to have to find something else to watch. So with YouTube, we're giving you a story of an animal or we're introducing you to an animal or showing you an environment 10 to 15 minutes tops. That's kind of the amount of time people have for something like that. You know, I love River Monsters. I've watched every episode at least two, if not three times, because I love that series. But if you were to try to launch River Monsters today in the landscape as it currently exists, forget about it. Not going yeah. to be, be successful, not going to be effective. People don't have time to sit through commercials and people don't have time to spend 45 minutes to see two minutes of a fish. They want their cake and they want it now. And the faster you can get it to them, the better your chance of them being like, sweet, that was awesome. What else you got for me? Oh, this thing, sweet. Okay, give me the next one, next one, next one. And if you can watch five different animals in 50 minutes versus 45 minutes for one fish species, and I'm just using river monsters as, as my easiest example, you're going to reach more people and more species more quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, everyone knows that attention spans are shortening and shortening and shortening. Yeah. But yeah, like bang on what you said. I mean, my favorite episode from River Monsters, and we're going to use River Monsters as the yeah. example, right? So is the death ray. So death, like the, the giant freshwater stingray that mm -hmm. they found within that um, river system. Um, what, what country was it? I've completely forgotten. Uh, it's not it was Thailand. Thailand, yeah. It was was Thailand. it Thailand? Right. Okay. So... That was amazing. I didn't know um, freshwater stingrays could get that big. I knew that manta rays could and things like that. But um, that had me on the edge of my seat all the way through. That said, all of the other episodes, and I have watched the whole all series of River Monsters like you have, mm -hmm. that's the only one that really held my attention for that long. Quite a lot of the time I skipped halfway through the episode. And that shows a real, that shows a bit of an issue, really. I mean... I mean, what, what do you do aside from making short, shorter amounts of content? Uh, if you've got the production value to do so, and if you've got the people behind you, and you've got all the editors that can push out an episode as fast as you can, um, uh, where, do you, where do you go? I mean, there's, you're the benchmark, essentially. People have got to compete with you. And we're talking about to, in terms of YouTube. Um, it's um, consistency. Mm -hmm. and uh, how many times you can push out good quality content. Yep. And that's difficult for someone that's not got a, pro of a, a, 
a, a large crew, I suppose. So what would you say to those people like myself who are dabbling in trying to talk about environmentalism and animal species and things like that, who well, don't well, have that kind of crew? What I would say is, you know, I started from exactly the same spot that any of these people started, right? So you, you hit two of them right off, off the bat. Uh, the, the quality is extremely important. The quantity is another important aspect. Like how much of something can you produce? And it's difficult, especially if you're, you know, listening to this podcast, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I, I can never get started. How will I ever build and start my own channel? All it takes is you and a camera. When we started Brave Wilderness, it was myself and my business partner, Mark Vins, and the two of us spent years going out and producing content. It was the two of us and we had two other people that came with us part-time, like we paid them tiny amounts of money to be a part of some productions just so we'd have another camera. I edited every single episode for the first two years of the Brave Wilderness channel. I write all of the voiceover scripts still to this day. Um, you have to really want to do it. So it's the quantity, it's the quality, and it's the consistency. That's the big thing is how do you keep that train rolling? Uh, Brave Wilderness just turned six years old, September 15th, and we have uploaded at least one piece of content pretty much every single week for six straight years, and at a minimum one piece, on average two to three pieces. So at this point, we have 621 videos, I think, that we have released on the Brave Wilderness channel. Mm -hmm. And that consistency is what allowed the channel to build the way that it did. And that production quality that, you know, again, comes from certainly my background as a screenwriter, producer, and director, and the rest of my team also having that filmmaking background we understood that it was a good narrative story that was gonna keep our audience engaged. And when you put that production value on it, it sets you apart from the rest of the pack. And that's not to diminish anything that other YouTubers are creating because everybody you know, creates their art with their own passion ingrained into it. But there are very few YouTubers that are traveling the world to produce content and put it together the way that we do. But when it comes to animals and adventure, this is the only way that we could do it. I mean, I could sit in my office and talk to you for 15 minutes about the alligator gar, but that's not going to show you the environment. It's not going to show you how this thing survives and it's not going to get this thing up close for the cameras. That's very true. Yeah, very true. And there's another thing that also just occurred to me, which um, is all about production and presentation, I suppose, is you pretty much. How, how did um your style your presenting style first emerged because you're really good at storytelling like even now uh, it feels like that you're talking to like giving peace to camera and it, and we're just having a chat but i'm just going oh wow that's so that's so interesting i mean lamprey wow, wow that's really cool all that kind of stuff it just feels like um that you've been reading off a, a script that you've written but you're just, you're, just, uh, you're just talking about something that you're very passionate about. Where does that kind of... I know that you're passionate about wildlife and that helps a great deal, but where does that presenting skill come from? Um, to be honest with you, I don't know where the presenting skill comes from because I'm not a person... When I was in college, you know, I never took like acting classes. You know, I, I never had any interest in being in front of the camera. But I spent a lot of time really researching the art of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. I call it Spielbergian theory. It's my own like, <laughs> made up term that I, I use sometimes. I like it. I really studied the art form that he perfectly crafted of how to get somebody engaged 
in motion picture. And then I apply that to everything that we do in the field, everything we do in post-production, but even the way that I try to present myself in public as a persona, right? Kyrie Peterson is a persona in his, in, its, in his own right. I mean, I don't consider myself an actor by any means. I don't memorize lines before I go into the field. Mm-hmm. I educate myself about a subject matter and then connect those pieces in my head as I'm flowing along, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm never gonna be perfect. And I'll do occasionally like, we'll be like, oh, cool. That was a great idea. Let's say that again and say it like this, you know, just like you would do on a movie set. Because when a good director is working with actors, you give them a script as a rubric, right? And say, this is the idea. Here's some of the words we want you to hit. How do you turn that into an organized improv? Like go back and watch something like Jaws or Jurassic Park. These famous Spielberg films where certainly they had scripts, but they couldn't have known how to perfectly present every one of these elements. You go back and watch some of like the mannerisms of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Like did Spielberg direct him to do those things or did he naturally make those choices as Goldblum to be like, this is what I have to add to that character. So I think about all those things when we are doing these episodes, when I'm in a a podcast, when I'm in a, a late night show, whatever it might be, how do you bring that ultimate level of entertainment and engagement to the audience and hope that it works? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Well said, <laughs> well presented. And also, <laughs> speaking of present- presentation, I really appreciate you on a podcast wearing your trademark hat. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, because like you said, if this is going to go out on your YouTube channel, yeah. you know, if I'm wearing just a baseball cap and you're using this to market, like the cowboy hat was hugely influenced by Indiana Jones, which yeah. that franchise is one of my favorites. Again, back to Spielberg. And what we, we recognized about that was, you know, I'm a, I'm a white dude living in Ohio mm-hmm. in the United States. Like it doesn't get more basic than that. How do you stand out to be something unique amongst, you know, the amazing list of characters that have been animal adventure presenters? And we said, well, let's give you a look that people will be able to recognize. And the cowboy hat certainly became signature with that. I loved all the gear that Bear Grylls always had. So I borrowed that element from him. And it was just, it was a matter of creating a human action figure out of myself to be like, I'm gonna be an animal adventure dude that is just as passionate about these things as Steve Irwin, but has the look of Indiana Jones. Yeah, well, it, it totally works to be fair. It really is um, a bit iconic these days. I mean, you can't think of, Brave Wilderness, Cody Peterson, without imagining the hat, pretty much. Right. Yeah, well, so going, exactly the same. Going back to what you were saying about yeah. you know, other people wanting to start YouTube channels, all these things that I'm sharing with you, you have to remember at one point in time, they happened with me having no subscriber base on YouTube and yeah. no millions and billions of views on YouTube. So it was literally just an idea on paper that started to take shape as we were like, cool. Let's go out in the swamps and catch another snapping turtle. Let's do this with your costume design. You know, get better at talking about the snapping turtle. Like, I can't tell you how many common snapping turtles I caught on camera that nobody's ever seen because we practiced and we did it over and over and over again to be like, get better at talking on camera, get better at knowing the facts about the, the, the turtle, you know, until finally we had an opportunity 
to, to put something out there to the world. And we tried to get a TV show for three years before we ever launched the YouTube channel, but everybody was like, nah, dude, nobody's interested in an animal adventure show host. They tried it with Steve Irwin. We know what happened. It's over. It's planet earth now. No one's ever going to pay attention to a guy presenting animals again. We just refuse to believe that. And if you, you know, took the fact that it was tragic that we lost Steve Irwin, do you think Steve Irwin wanted all the rest of us to just quit? Did we, was he like, all right, I lost my life in the process of educating people, promoting conservation. So I never want anybody else to go and do it. No. How do you carry on somebody's legacy unless you follow in those footsteps? And I hope that somebody eventually is out there right now practicing to follow in my footsteps because the YouTube space is the best place to do that. There's no executives telling you what you can and can't do. When we try to launch a TV show, we pitched to every network and they were like, mm, no, that's, that's not what's interesting now. We don't, we don't want to do that. Typical. Well, Brave Wilderness is bigger than any one of those television networks at this point that distributes animal adventure content. We dwarf them in the number of views and the number of people that we reach on a daily basis. So where I'll go with that is just saying, believe in yourself, go out there and do it and you can make it happen because I was just like everybody else when we started Brave Wilderness. No subscribers, no, nothing other than my knowledge of how to tell stories, basically. That's it. I mean, 17 million plus subscribers, boy. How how do you beat that? (laughs) They can't. They can't compete with your numbers. I mean, what me, if anyone's listening right now, by the way, what me and Cody are really saying um, is pick up a camera. (laughs) If you've got some kind of interest in the natural world, I implore you, and I'm sure you do as well, just pick up a camera because everyone starts somewhere. I mean, you started, like you've said a couple of few times now, you started with zero subscribers. Right. You started hatless. You started, um, you know, right at the bottom, like just like everyone else. It just takes your enthusiasm, your dedication, and obviously a little bit of knowledge and passion about the subject. And the, and the thing that I think we're beginning to recognize as a brand, because what you just said is like, oh, you know, nobody will catch us. They may or they may not, you know, I'm eager to see somebody come out and and make a run at building a channel the size of ours, but we are very much in tune with maybe we're the channel that is going to bring the next big animal adventure show host to the table. And it's, it's a concept that we've already gotten works now that don't be surprised within the next couple of years, if you don't see a pretty substantial series and competition that is launched to give somebody that next opportunity. I mean, I would love to make it to where David Attenborough is at someday where I get to narrate awesome wildlife documentaries. Right now at my age and my physical ability, I can still get in the mud and do these things, but I also don't wanna just be this guy forever. I want somebody else to have that chance. We want to foster the next generation. I mean, when I was getting started, I would think to myself, you know, why not me? You know, like why, why doesn't Bear Grylls look me up and be like, dude, I'm going to get on board and executive produce a show for you because I'm Bear Grylls and you can be Coyote Peterson and I'm going to help you out. And, you know, we never approached Bear to ask him if he would do that. So I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. <laughs> um, I absolutely love Bear. Um, but we look at that to be like, everybody's always so concerned of like me. I want to be at the top, but why? Like, why aren't we always looking for who's going to be the next best? You know, and I think that's the approach that Brave Wilderness is now beginning to investigate and and look for. Like we want to foster the next generation of animal adventure show hosts. And if that involves me 
physically training somebody, them shadowing the work that I do and in, in, in priming them and apprenticing them into that role to create more shows, that's what we're going to do. Right. Cool. That's that be an excellent place to, I think, um, begin to wrap up the podcast. A bit of optimism finally on this podcast because it's it just the chances are. I don't know if you've heard a few of the episodes before. We just end up talking about deforestation and how biodiversity is slowly crumbling away. But a bit of optimism about like you know really enjoying the natural world, especially while we've got it, is is a great place to end. Um, just before we go, I know for a fact that you've got a few books out, quite a few books actually, to be fair. Um, what have you got going on that you'd like to share with the audience? Yeah, well, certainly when it comes to the end of this year, um, you know, when we went and produced the television series, you know, a lot of people, at least our audience on YouTube was like, Coyote, you're putting all the best content on the TV show. We want more on YouTube. The best content we have produced in six years thus far on the Break Wilderness channel is about to drop in the last three months of this year. Like, I'm so excited for right. the content that we have coming out, starting with the first weekend in October. Um, so there are some really big episodes coming. Um, my newest book, uh, actually I have one right here, The Beast of Bites, uh, just cool. launched as well. So that is now available. It's the follow-up to The King of Sting and chronicles some of my craziest bites. Um, and other than that, I'd say just stay tuned to the Brave Wilders channel. We got lots of big stuff coming, especially heading into 2021. Um, some big production trips on the horizon. And for God's sakes, like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Cody, for, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. A real... Oh, it's always it's good to talk to talk to an American. You're so optimistic about everything. <laughs> I really am, man. I guess the last thing that I'll say in regards to like the, the future of of conservation and in wildlife and just everything that is our planet is I look at myself as somebody who's paving a road, right? Like I'm doing everything that I can to get kids and their families excited about animals. There's a lot of conservation efforts that Brave Wilderness wants to get even more heavily involved in, but I know that we're going to start that movement and it's these kids that are learning from the animals today, even watching a podcast like this that are going to find that inspiration the same way that I found it in Steven Spielberg and Bear Grylls and Steve Irwin to be like, how do you take that to the next level? So it's about fostering the future generations to be like, you guys are going to be the ones to make the difference to save this planet because somebody has to do it. And it's going to be them because it's in a lot of trouble right now. I won't shy away from saying that. And the more that we can bring that to the forefront and get people excited and encouraged to change the future, the better the future is going to be for their future generations. Exactly. I mean, you've got, you've got a, a daughter. Is it mm -hmm. just a daughter right now? Um, I've got a son and a daughter and it is definitely their generation that is going to, you know, it's so it's going to be so aware i mean me and you we weren't really told that too much about the environment and the right. and the plight of all animals on earth and how human civilization has had such an impact on the natural world right. but uh we'll we are running out of time so we'll definitely leave it there but i gotta say thank you so much mate for for coming on the podcast i really do appreciate it my pleasure anytime you want to have me back on i'd be more than happy to dedicate some time we'll talk some crazy stuff Yes, definitely will. Definitely will. And we will, we'll have to catch up after this next real like gold dust content that you're about to yeah. release. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be in touch. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, mate. Have a, have a great day. Thanks so much for having me. Talk soon. 
That was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed that chat. Um, wow. Uh, so much to unpack, really. Um, thank you so much, Cozy, for coming on the podcast. I really can't wait to have you back on, mate. That was really, really cool. Thank you so much. If you guys want to know what Cozy's been getting up to recently and you really want to check out what he's been what he was talking about all this amazing content that's going to come out on his channel check out the brave wilderness youtube channel click the link i'll have the link in the description please subscribe like as much as you much as you can and click the notifications bell and you'll be inundated with content constantly about the natural world and what code is trying to do to educate people and you know the, all the different conservation bits and pieces that he champions so much so yeah really check that out it's, re- it's a really really cool channel and the the content is a constant stream it really is i mean every every time i log into youtube bam there's another brave wilderness piece of content but yeah that was that was so cool i mean check it out please do if you guys want to help support the podcast please like subscribe share it wherever you can uh, leave a review reviews are always really good feedback that that would be great but um yeah thank you guys so much for listening once again more content is coming your way we're going to have another update very soon but yeah we've still still going through the list of different people to talk to and the and the animal a to z is going to be out soon as well so yeah stick around for that but until next time stay safe